Well, I invite you to turn with me this morning. We're going to be continuing in uh, consideration of uh, some things surrounding uh, Job's friends again. Um, last week I began, or a couple of weeks ago, I began to talk about some things pertaining to Job's friends. Uh, I entitled that message, Good Friends But Sorry Counselors, and I still believe that is true, that when Job's friends came to him, they came as good friends. They were good friends. Undoubtedly, they were men who had laid aside their responsibilities. Uh, They had left their families. They had prepared and planned. Uh, It probably took them weeks, if not months, to get to Job. Uh, These are true friends, undoubtedly. But they were sorry comforters. In fact, Job describes them in Job chapter 16, verse 1. He calls them, sorry comforters are you all. In Job chapter 13, 4, he calls them and he says to them, you are all worthless physicians. These are pretty strong words. He calls them sorry comforters. And worthless physicians. Job's suffering touched every part of his existence. And he needed help. He indeed needed help. He needed the right help, though. Um, If you want to choose a good doctor, there are some things you need to consider. So I read an article uh, that highlighted some things you need to choose when, uh, when you're trying or have with you or questions you need to have when you're trying to choose a good doctor. One thing they asked was, uh, does the person practice empathetic communication? Uh, does he foster trust? Does the person show compassion? Does the person listen carefully? Does the person cultivate open dialogue? Does the person engage directly with the personal touch? And those were the only things they put on that list. I found that there was a couple of things that needed to also be placed on that list. If you were to be a good doctor, you need to have knowledge. And you need to be able to diagnose Conditions, so that you might accurately treat those conditions. We find in Job's friends that issue arising is that they had trouble treating the condition because they were not properly diagnosing the condition. Now, we saw last time when we began to consider Job's friends, we looked at verses chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, under these four headings, we looked at the approach of Job's friends, and we said that Job's friends approached him, and they approached him as true friends, coming with the intention to comfort Job, to, to come to his aid, to help him, to come alongside of him, to sympathize with him. That's the word that's used as for why they came to Job. And to sit with him. And so we saw last time that these friends were true friends. 
And they came with the intention of helping Job. We saw also the assessment of Job's friends. Their assessment of Job was that Job was in the condition that he was in because somehow he had sinned. And we talked about how their theology guided their understanding and consideration of Job's situation because they had a theology that if you do good, God will do good to you. And if you do bad, you will receive bad from God. This was their theology. And this morning, we're going to begin to look at the accusations of Job's friends and the answers of Job's friends. Now, the accusations of Job's friends, again, flow from this reality. Job, you are suffering because you have sinned against God. You're suffering because you have sinned against God. Now, if we were to put this in a a, a logical statement, what we call a syllogism, it would be like this. It would go like this. The major premise would be this. All who are afflicted and suffering have sinned against God. That's your major premise. This is how they were thinking. The minor premise was this. Job, you are afflicted and suffering. Therefore, the conclusion is this. You have sinned against God. Now, this is a logical and quite frankly, it is a valid argument. However, just because an argument is logical does not mean that it's valid, a valid argument, okay? Or it doesn't mean it's a true argument. It can be logically valid, but that does not mean that it is true. Here's an example. All those who trust in Muhammad will be saved from the wrath of God. John trusted in Muhammad, therefore John will be saved from the wrath of God. That is actually a valid argument, a logically valid argument. But it is absolutely wrong. And this is where Job's friends lie. Their major premise was wrong. Their major premise was wrong concerning Job and concerning God and his retribution towards sin. And this is why in chapter 42, God, he, 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 he admonishes Eliphaz and his friends because they had spoken incorrectly about him. Now, the first person to speak is a man by the name of Eliphaz. If you'll turn to me to chapter four, Eliphaz. Now, the accusations against Job begin in a, by, by them making general statements about sin and God's justice. And Eliphaz speaks first. It appears that Eliphaz is the oldest of the three friends of Job. And by implication, he would be considered the wisest of the three. And he begins the accusations against Job by asking some rhetorical questions. Now, let me back up first. Let's begin in verse one, and then we'll get to those rhetorical questions. In verse four, it says, then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered, if one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? Now, he starts off very gently. Verse 
2, he says, but who can refrain from speaking? So apparently what Job had said in chapter 3, which those are some pretty uh, discouraging things that Job was saying. He was speaking in a, a, as a man in despair. So if you read chapter 3, you see a man who says he was despairing even of life. He wanted his life to be, to be ended. Not in a suicidal way. Understand that. That's not what we're saying there. But he did want his life to come to an end because of his suffering. He suffered immensely, unimaginably, only akin to that of our Lord Jesus Christ in this life. Verse three says, behold, you have admonished many. and You have strengthened weak hands. He begins by commending Job. This is right. This is good. You, you, if you're going to admonish someone, if you're going to talk to them, you should begin by commending them. This is a good thing. He says, your words have helped the tottering to stand. And you have strengthened feeble knees. He, he historically goes back and says, Job, you know, you've been a help to many. He says, but now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. He says, it's not your fear of God, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope. Verse seven, he says, now he gets into the accusation. He says, remember now. Whoever perished being innocent or where were you, where were the upright destroyed? And so he begins with these two rhetorical questions here. Whoever perished being innocent and where were you were the upright destroyed? So he asked those questions and they were self-evident questions. He's, in his mind, these were self-evident questions. He's saying the innocent don't perish and the upright are not destroyed. So something's wrong here, Job. Verse 80 says, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. Now, he begins in verse 8 to appeal to his authority. Now, what is, Job's, what is Eliphaz's authority in this passage here? So he speaks here in verse 8. Well, it's his own experience. He says, according to what I have seen, I'm saying this about God, that God deals with the innocent in a, certain, in a certain way. He deals with the guilty in a certain way because of what I have experienced as a man, a wise man. And I have lived a long life. He's grounding these realities and these truths and what he is assessing Job's life to be based upon his own experience. He says, what I have seen. What I have observed this is what I'm basing it on. He says, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Verse nine, by the breath of God, they perish and by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. He's just saying the lion perishes for lack of prey and the young lions are broken. Whelps of the lioness are scattered. He says, these are the consequences. They even are, there are even consequences for nature. 
Even the lion has consequences. Verse 12, he says, now a word was brought to me stealthily and my ear received a whisper of it amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling and made all my bones shake. He says, then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. And so he's making his second appeal here. His second appeal is based on special revelation he's saying here. I received a word from God. God told me that this is true about himself and about sin and how he deals with sin. So he appeals to that divine authority. God said. We have people who do this very frequently. You have TV preachers who stand up in their pulpits and they say things that sound almost right, that sound, they approximate truth, and then they ground the validity of those statements upon divine truth. God told me. God said to me. God spoke to me. They'll even use the passage that Bryce spoke of and preached on last week. I heard the still, small voice. God told me. That's dangerous. It is absolutely dangerous. I had someone come to my wife about 15, 16 years ago and told my wife that God told her that she was to get up, take her children, pack up and leave. And she said, well, what about my husband? And the person said, well, God said nothing about your husband. But this person had heard from God and went on to say, and this is your last warning. I'll never I'll not say it again. And so people do this very frequently. They say, I have heard from God. God spoke to me. God talked to me. The Bible doesn't say anywhere in it that God is still speaking in that way. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. We have the final and complete authority of the word of God right here in the pages of Scripture. This is the word of God. This is sufficient for us. He has given to us all that we need for life and godliness in the knowledge of him. We have all that we need. This man, Eliphaz, is saying, no, 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 no. God told me this. Now, what does he say that God told him? Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Since he puts no trust in his servants and against his angels, he charges error. Is what he said, is that true? 
Absolutely, he's asking a rhetorical question. Man can't be just before God in himself. Man can't be pure, pure before his maker in himself. He's stating truisms, truth here. He is saying things that are true. And this is what we'll find throughout the book of Job is that his friends, they are saying things that are absolutely true. Unequivocally, they are true. You, there are some things you can go chapter and verse and find those things and say, yes, that is true. God said those things right there. He says, can God, mankind be just before God? Of course, not apart from a, a savior. You can't be just before God. Can a man be pure before his maker? Not without the righteousness of Christ. You can't be pure before your maker. Absolutely not. He's just stating these things, and they are true. He even says, he speaks here of the absolute and utter holiness of God, and and against his angels he charges error because they are not pure as God is pure. They're not as holy as God is holy. So the question arises, well, does God expresses justice in time then. We're saying that, yes, these statements are true in a sense where, where God, and we're saying that what, what he's saying right here is not necessarily absolutely true in Job's situation. Does God express his justice in time? Of course, the answer to that is yes. We have a couple of occasions in the scriptures where there was sin and there was God's immediate judgment. There was God's immediate judgment after the sin or the act. So, for example, in Acts chapter 12, speaking of Herod, it says, On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, this is verse 21, took his seat on the rosh and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not a man. And it says, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. And so there's an example there, immediate judgment. There was judgment in light of sin, and not just eternal judgment. There was judgment in this life here that took place. We have this in 1 Corinthians when the Corinthian church, they were coming to the Lord's table. They came there flippantly and casually. There were people coming to the Lord's table in chapter 11, verse 27 through 32. That they were, they were, those passages, portions before that they were coming to the table. Uh, they, were, they were bringing their own food. They were, the, the, the wealthy and the poor, the wealthy were not sharing their food with the poor. Uh, they were getting drunk at the Lord's table. Uh, they, were, uh, they were eating before others. They were being selfish in those things. They were just treating it flippantly. He says in verse 32, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 30 says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. He says, verse 31, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, 
we are disciplined by the Lord. And so in the first uh, passage I gave you in Acts, that was an unbeliever. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, he's here talking about believers. So we don't need to be mistaken that sometimes God does judge us in this life here. If we're believers, not eternal judgment unto to death, that final death, but there's times when God judges us, even as believers. He disciplines us. Perhaps, I think we can say perhaps even unto sickness or even death. Now, the problem with Job's friend's theology is that it makes God out to be vindictive and a God who goes tit for tat. And what this does is this cheapens the justice of God. It really does. It cheapens the justice of God. God is not sitting around reacting to the perverse and sinful actions of man like some sort of vengeful dictator whose subjects are not submitting to him. No, God's Anger and his wrath against sin is a settled wrath. It is measured. It is sovereign. One writer has said this concerning having a proper view of God's wrath. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. And that may sound a little strange to your ears. He says, God's wrath is his love in action against sin. He says, God is love, and God does all things for his glory. He loves his glory above all. Therefore, God rules the world in such a way that brings himself maximum glory. This means that God must act justly and judge sin. Otherwise, God would not be God. God's love for his glory motivates his wrath against sin. Admittedly, God's love for his own glory is the most sobering reality for many and not good news for sinners. It is, after all, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So God does judge, and he judges in time. Now, notice that what he said here, he said was absolutely true. Can a man be pure before God? He said this in other places, too. He said things that were true. These these friends of Job said things that were true. He says, behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds, and his hands also heal. Is that true that God reproves us? Yes. Is it true that we should be find joy in that reproof in the final analysis? Yes. So is it true that we should not despise the discipline of the almighty? Amen. But you don't say that to a man who just lost everything he has. All his children. He's lost his wife, his health. 
In Job chapter 19, it says his, his wife says his breath stinks. All of his friends have abandoned him. All of his brothers have left him. You cannot say certain things to certain people at, that, at, a, at a certain time. We have to have wisdom. The Proverbs say in, in Proverbs 25, 11, but like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. You have to assess the circumstances before you speak, brothers and sisters. You can't just throw out Bible verses. They might be true. It might be true. It might be altogether true. But you need to be careful about just throwing out Bible verses and scripture to try to heal a wounded heart. This man is wounded. He is he is weighed down unimaginably with his grief. And so what we should do is we should listen to him, take note of what he's doing, understand his circumstances, sympathize with him, show compassion to him, love him, help him. It's not the time to admonish, though. We're to admonish the unruly. To help the faint hearted, we're to 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 encourage the weak. That's Paul's instruction to the church at Thessalonica, that there are fitting responses to various circumstances that occur in the life of the believer. And you have to have the wisdom to know what to say, when to say it. And I would even say how to say it. My wife is not here this morning, so I can say this. Don't tell her. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I was going through something that, and wrestling with some things. And my wife, if you know her, she's got a song for you, don't she? Right? <laughs> and in that time, she started singing a song to me. And I was just like, oh. I was like, sweetheart said, just say it. <laughs> just say the truth. Just say the truth. And she was like, okay. <laughs> but it was a word that was spoken to me. And the way that she said it, it was, it was hard for me to receive it at that time. It's like singing songs to a man whose heart is weighed down. You don't do that like that, okay? There's a time for that. There's a time for that. This time, I just needed her to say, sweetheart, you need to trust the Lord. She did. She did. Chapter 5, verse 24, we see another thing that they say that is true. And they began to, he begins to now, um, let me back up with that. He begins now to say things specifically about what Job is guilty of. He's not just, he's no longer making just these general statements about Job's sin. He's saying now, here's some specific things in Job's life. Chapter 5, verse 2, he says, for anger slays the foolish man. He call, he's calling Job foolish. 
and jealousy kills the simple. He says, I have seen the foolish taking root, and I curse his abode immediately. His sons are far from safety. They are even oppressed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. This is very insensitive, by the way. This is very insensitive. He says here, he calls him a fool, first of all, in his distress. And he calls him simple. He even goes on to say that when there's the foolish and the simple, he says, I curse their abode immediately. And then he says in verse four, he says, his sons are far from safety. The man just lost seven sons and three daughters. How insensitive is this? It's very insensitive. This is instructive to us in that we need to be mindful of what we say to people when they're in their distress. You don't want to say things that are insensitive. Someone's son died or or their daughter dies. It's not a time to, to expound your understanding of the doctrine of reprobation. Don't do that. That's not the time for that. That's insensitive. Let's just say there's a, a mother and she, she loses her son. He, he's, he's addicted to drugs. He's, he's, he's enslaved to his sin. And he, he goes off and he's, he dies from an overdose. It's not a time to expound on the T in total depravity. We don't do that at that time, okay? You, 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 you're there to comfort them. Now, his other friend, Bildad, in verse, chapter 8, verse 4, let me, let me back up just a In verse 5, verse, in chapter 5, 2, 3, 4, He actually blames Job for his sons. He's intimating that it's because of your foolishness, Job, that your sons were not in safety. Down in in Job chapter 8, Bildad says, if your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Harsh. Harsh. If you recall, we went from the beginning where they were where Eliphaz was commending Job to then rebuking Job to now they are they're downright mean and harsh right now is what you're seeing right now. These men are they've gotten to be harsh at this point. Now. They're probably responding initially to what what Job said in chapter three. I think they're just insensitive men. Just insensitive men. In Job chapter 22, 4 through 11, we have more accusations levied against Job. It says, beginning in verse 4, is it because of your reverence that he reproves you, that he enters into judgment against you? Is not your wickedness great? And your iniquities without end, for you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink, and from the hungry you have withheld bread. 
The earth belongs to the mighty man and the honorable man dwells in it. You have sent widows away empty and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Therefore, snares around you and sudden death terrifies you or darkness so that you cannot see and an abundance of water covers you. In other words, they're saying, Job, you are not practicing pure and undefiled religion. In the sight of God. This is the accusation against Job. You're not a just man, Job. You're a cruel man. That's why this is happening to you. Now, understand, they have not seen this. They've not heard of this from anyone else that Job has done these things. They're surmising from the fact that he's suffering so greatly that he had to have done something that was so diabolical so evil and so wicked that God has to have has to punish him in this way because no one could have in had these consequences upon their lives unless they had done very, very wicked things. And so he's surmising. This, too, is instructive to us. We don't want to make assumptions about what people have done in their sin. You have to be mindful that we need to, specifically when you go to someone about something, you need to have concrete evidence. This is why when we go to someone, if we go to that next stage and they, they don't hear us, when we go to that next stage, when we, when we bring two or three with us, we have to confirm the matter. We need to have confirmed sin, confirmed evidence that there is sin taking place before we begin to accuse people of things. This is how we deal with each other in the body of Christ. We don't make accusations based on assumptions of what we think might be true or may not be true. In Job chapter 15, it says, Verse 6, he says, your own mouth condemns you and not I and your own lips testify against you. He says, were you the first man to be born or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? Verse 9, what do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you, even the words spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do you, your eyes flash He's, that you should turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth? And so they accuse him of pride. Job, you're proud. You've abandoned God. See, now, they're, now they're, they're, they're going deeper than what his actions are. Now they're accusing him of his motives and his heart's intentions now. So now they're able to see that they have some sort of special knowledge about what's going on in Job's heart. Brothers and sisters, we don't have special knowledge about what's going on in people's hearts. We can base things on certain actions that people are doing and we can assess things in that way, but we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. 
This is what Job is dealing with, people who are making judgments about him based upon their own surmising of these things. And so Job is accused of pride and abandoning God. And so those are the accusations that Job's friends bring against him. Job, you had to have been and have done something uh, magnanimously wicked because you have received such disturbing consequences from the hand of God. And this is there, these accusations. Now, consider now Job's friends or the answer of Job's friends. Here are their answers. Basically, it's this. Job, if you repent of your sin, God will restore you. If you do right, God will do right by you. If you do good, God will do good to you. In chapter 4, I'm sorry, that was chapter 11. Sorry about that. Chapter 11. This is Zophar speaking. And this is, by the way, these, these, their, their counsel is pretty much, cons- they have consensus in their counseling. They're, they're all giving him the same kind of counsel. In verse 13, it says, if you would direct your heart right and spread out your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, Put it far away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. He's calling him to repentance. Verse 15, then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear. For you would forget your trouble as waters that have passed by. You would remember it. Your life would be brighter than noonday. Darkness would be like the morning. Now, understand that because the diagnosis was wrong, now the treatment is wrong as well. And perhaps even the prognosis is wrong because they did not analyze properly the situation with Job. Now, understand They're in the dark about this because Job himself doesn't even know what's happening. But because they don't know, you should be quiet then. Just be quiet. Don't say anything. Be silent and be a friend. Now, what they say to Job is that if you repent, your countenance will be lifted up. And your joy and your hope will be restored. These were prosperity preachers before there were prosperity preachers. This is what you have here. 
you do good. And this is their theology, by the way. This is, this is the theology of, of many during that time. This is the theology of the Pharisees. This was sometimes it crept into that even among the disciples of Jesus. But certainly we see here that they had a, a health, wealth, and prosperity theology. In Job 22, beginning in verse 21, just jumping around here, this is Eliphaz again. I think this is his, this may be his last speech right here. He says, Job, in verse, he says, yield now and be at peace with him, thereby... Good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove right unrighteousness far from your tent. So again, this is Eliphaz now saying the same thing. The prosperity gospel here. Now, these answers are simplistic. I didn't say simple. Listen, we want simple answers. But this is simplistic in its because its application is wrong, okay? He's just making a general statement about the retribution of God. And now he's applying it to Job. Now, what was wrong with this from the very beginning? is that Job was not an unrighteous man. In fact, God's testimony of Job was that that Job was the the, the greatest man in all the world at that time. That he was a righteous man. That he feared God. He was blameless, upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. He was a righteous man. And this wasn't just the testimony of Job or a few of his his friends who kind of were were, were his yes men. No, this was, the, this was the word of God concerning Job. And so, of course, this, this assessment of him was absolutely wrong. That diagnosis was wrong. And so the application was wrong. Let me just finish with a few thoughts to close our time together. In regards to, as we speak with people in their distress, you can say the right thing at the wrong time. Okay, you can say the right thing at the wrong time. You can say things regarding the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, sometimes at the wrong time, okay? You can. Now, what I mean by that, now, don't take me wrong, don't, don't take this and say, Pastor Sean is saying this or that about, I'm just saying this to you. You got to be careful. You got you, you to gotta, you gotta, you gotta be like a physician, 
You got to take that word. Because sometimes when people when you say the right thing at the wrong time, those words can sound like uh, uh, pious platitudes. And so you need to be careful. You need to yield that sword. Like a scalpel at that time. That sword is like a scalpel. That word is should be used like a scalpel during those times because it takes sensitive and and precise cuts and whatever in order to apply the word of God. It needs to be thought through and considered before you just jump in. Secondly, you can also, which is what they were guilty of, you can also say the wrong thing to the right person. Okay? You can say the wrong thing to the right person. This is what they were guilty of. They were saying wrong things. Everything they said was not right. This reminds us that we need to, we need to know what the word of God says. We don't want to be giving false information about who God is. We need to, we need to as, as we are ourselves being fact-checked, you need to fact-check yourself. Is that absolutely true about God? And so we could say the wrong thing to the right person. Thirdly, you can say the right thing or you can say the right thing to the right person in the wrong way. The right thing to the right person, but in the wrong way. And so we need to speak the truth. It needs to be in love. It needs to be covered with love. It needs to be bathed with love. And it needs to be infused with love. Love needs to permeate when we speak the truth to others. Because if we don't, then it will not be marked by kindness and patience and long-suffering and the pursuit of that person's good. And what do I mean by that? I mean this. Sometimes we say the truth because we know it's true and we want to win the argument. Or we want to say something spiritually um, profound. There we go. Thank you. Spiritually profound. No, when we are instructing people in the word of God, we instruct people out of love, from a pure heart. That's why we instruct. That's why your pastors instruct you from here. It's not to flex any kind of theological muscle here. That's not why we preach and teach the word of God. That's not the goal of our instruction. The goal of our instruction is love. We love you all. We want your good to be established and to to be yours. Because we love you. And so our instruction flows from a heart of love for you all. Your pastors don't labor and spend 
hours preparing messages and lessons so that we can say, I got another notch in my belt or that we can win an argument. We can convince you that we know something. No, it is because we want to see the body of Christ walking with the Lord. Laying hold of Christ, being witnesses and lights in the world when you go from here and not being those who bring reproach upon the name of Christ. But by, but by your lives, that your lives will be testimonies of the grace of God, that grace that we preach. This is why we preach and instruct in the word of God. This is why your pastors labor. And I'm saying to you, it is we labor. And I'm not boasting about that. I'm not saying that in a boastful way. I'm just saying this is the reality that your pastors do labor. For you. And for the brethren at Grace Fellowship Church. Let us end our time. Just remembering this. That as we see the book of Job, we see a man who was a man of sorrows. and He was acquainted with grief, just like our Savior. Consider that he, like, like Job, his brothers abandoned him. They would not believe in him. They despised him and rejected him. Just like, just like Job, it's like Christ. Job was rejected of men. He had no comeliness. Job didn't have any comeliness, just like our Savior. So as we consider these things, we need to consider our Savior. Job, like our Savior. He didn't suffer suffer redemptively. That's not what we're talking about here. But he suffered in like manner as our Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time and thank you for your word. Please use these things in our hearts. Draw us to yourself. And this next hour, Lord, may this time as we have heard your word, may it be a time of tuning our hearts that we might all in this next hour come together and lift up our voices with rejoicing and delight in our great God and Savior. And Lord, may we, as we are hear these things about how we counsel and Instruct people in your word, Lord. May these truths help us as we sit with others and talk with them who are in their distress. Lord, give us wisdom, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.